the one mistake you said I see most companies make when they come into this market is they treat these companies like an industry. He said, whereas actually it's a community. We all know each other. We've worked together for years. We've made money together. We've lost money together. He said, and we'll all talk about you behind your back. Hello, and welcome to the Instec London podcast. This is Matthew Grant, one of the founders of Instec London. And in this episode, we bring you the second half of our event of the 30th of April, when we were talking about the marketing of innovation in insurance. Uh, in this part, I'm up on stage talking to five companies, all got a very different perspective on how to perform marketing uh, for the insurance industry. First up, we have Olivia Hendrick, marketing director of Hiscox UK and Ireland. Uh, and she's talking about the fascinating marketing campaign Hiscox ran to raise awareness of the cyber risk and cyber hacks in SME. Andy Yeoman is CEO and co-founder of Consirus. Uh, they've been very successful in the last few years in rolling out their marine underwriting tool. And Andy talks about how he learned to talk the language of insurance underwriters to help him and his team uh, engage with the market. Chris Williams of Proper LinkedIn Marketing uh, is an expert on what it takes to get engagement through LinkedIn. We have a great discussion about things such as uh, when are the right times to post content and whether it's better to post on a company page or on your own personal stage uh, and also what is the future of Twitter. Alex Hearn is founder and CEO of Slipcase. He's providing the news from over 30 of his clients out to the broad insurance marketplace both in the UK and then soon to be in the US and Alex is very interesting talking about how he helps his clients measure when people are reading their content and what kind of content is getting the highest level of interest. And then finally, Neil Edwards, founder of Marketing Eye, which helps insurtechs and fintechs with demand generation, talks a bit about the work they're doing and why uh, they release their newsletter at 7 a.m. on Friday. First of all, Olivia Hendrick from Hiscox, would you join me on stage? Let's start off with, with you a bit. So you are marketing director at Hiscox. You've come into the industry from a, a very different background. Uh, be very interested to know what brought you in from fast-moving consumer goods into, into insurance to do some marketing. I fundamentally, as a brand marketeer, believe that every single thing we do should be powered by customer insight. Um, but it's bringing those insights to life, reinforcing that one in three small businesses have suffered a cyber attack and so forth. So that the hack, as we call that, uh, the, the video we did, the videos we did with um, Brompton, the uh, Brompton Bike Shop, but it was led by our advertising agency, AMV. Um, the, the purpose of that was, as I, I'm, I'm still pretty new to insurance, um, and what I realized was nobody appreciated how paralyzing a cyber attack would be until you really see it or you hear the stories of it. So I wanted to bring that to life and take it from the kind of invisible uh, virtual world of online into the real world. Um, and that's why uh, the Brompton guys kindly uh, allowed us to uh, hack one of their stores. So uh, for those of you who didn't see the video, we had, uh, there was a Brompton bike store and we literally copied the store to the closest possible way we could. So right down to doppelgangers at the staff, the uniforms and so forth, and, and filmed what happened when they saw this shop materialise in front of their eyes. Yeah, so it's, a great, it's a great video. So, so if anybody wants to go and take a look at that, what's the easiest way to, 
to find it. So if you go to, his, uh, to YouTube and put in Hiscock's Hack, um, there's a range of videos, there's three minutes, there's 15 seconds, shorter videos. We've had 20 million views, so it's, it's doing really well. Wow. But what's most... Um, Sorry, 20 million yeah, views. Yeah, it's 20 million views. You're, but doing good, you're, you're doing well. It's doing well, but what's most... So you're, so you're doing well. And you... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, they, they, they let me keep doing this stuff. Fantastic, okay. Well, so cyber's quite a big area for, for Hiscox. You also have your uh, cyber academy. Is that, is that part of your marketing, or is that more for sort of people when they've signed up? No, so, so it's fundamentally part of the same kind of core proposition, which is around um, educating and building resilience, really, in our target audience. So the Cyber Academy is about um, giving them access to, to insulating their business, really. What we know today is that two-thirds of cyber breaches within a business are human error-driven. Um, so it's, it's easy um, to, to inform yourself and help alleviate some of the risks. So that's the purpose of that. And the, um, the benefit for, cus- for companies who go through it is they have no access. So there's a tangible business benefit to those who go through it along oh, the So they take the Cyber Academy, then you remove the excess yeah. so that you pay from the, the full claim. Very interesting. Okay, so the question everybody asks is, how do you measure success in marketing? So what key metrics do you use to go back to your board to explain, I guess... 20 million downloads is a pretty good one. Um, what other key metrics do you use to show what you're doing? So it's, it's kind of, uh, so brand health, fundamentally, yes, the 20 million views is good, but actually what's more important is what impact that has in terms of brand health. That means kind of brand awareness, how many people know the brand, brand affinity, how they feel about the brand and so forth. Secondly, we run uh, econometric modelling, which uh, really uh, explores the key drivers of brand growth. Um, and that looks at what are the key channels, the ROI by channel. So we do a lot of outdoor, as many people have seen, what the ROI that that delivers. And finally, the standard kind of acquisition metrics that you would look like and probably any brands here would look at in terms of the return on investment. Great. Robin, did you get that? Econometric? Yeah, next big word. Great. Olivia, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on stage tonight. So next up is Andy Yeoman, CEO and founder of Concerus. Um, so whilst Andy is waking his way up the stage, uh, Concerus was founded in 2012. And the reason that I asked Andy to join us tonight is I've been very impressed by his marketing in a B2B space. So again, show of hands if you've heard of Concerus. Andy, you are doing really yeah, well. Oh, yeah, that's, about, that's about 60% of the room. So... And tell me, first of all, the other 40% that haven't heard of you, your elevator pitch and what Concerus does. Yeah, so in three sentences, we help marine insurers improve their loss ratios. We do that by providing behavioural-based underwriting, so we reveal the underlying behaviour of the assets, and we do that by ingesting massive amounts of data and pumping it through some proprietary uh, AI and technology. Okay, fantastic. And now you, you joined the insurance industry, I guess, in um, 2012, didn't have a background in insurance. How, what have you done to manage to get such a high visibility into the space sort of so, so quickly? Um, well, I think there's a couple of things. We, the first thing, we approached it with something which is actually not natural for me, which is a degree of humility. Um, and we, we networked around. We got introduced to some really good people. One of the uh, gentlemen, a guy called Rupert Atkin, I don't know if anyone knows him, he's the chief executive and founder of Talbot. Uh, and he sat down and said, you know, the one mistake he said I see most companies make when they come into this market is they treat these companies like an industry. 
He said, whereas actually it's a community. You know, we've, we all know each other. We've worked together for years. We've made money together. We've lost money together. He said, and we all talk, we'll all talk about you behind your back. He said, so decide what your personality is going to be as a company and stay true to it. Uh, help the industry make money. They will look after you too. And marine is particularly difficult to break into. The mariners you know, tend to think they've been doing insurance for the longest of anybody. I mean, the fact that Lloyd's has got marine and non-marine, you talk about humility. Uh, how do you manage to crack into that space when they've been doing this for years? And- uh, well, we'll get into marine. I think when I get asked, how did you get into marine insurance? Sheer bad luck is the answer I usually give. Um, but actually, um, on a more serious note, we, we actually, my heritage was in telematics and truck and fleet telematics. And when we saw uh, the marine market, what we actually saw was a market that was based here in London primarily. Uh, it was awash with, with, with data. Uh, they were technology laggards, uh, and uh, there was no other company in that market serving the need that we saw. And all of those things were attractive to us, even the technology laggards, because uh, candidly, when we modernised some of the things that they were doing, uh, we would pick up the benefits of that, whether it was an indirect benefit or, or, or not. Um, and then we've had to approach it with a, uh, I think the, the best metaphor is probably that, the one of the, the boil the frog metaphor. And if you go in and tell people uh, two or three steps down the line how their world can be, it's very confused. Uh, but if you can just give them, okay, if you just take this step, you'll get here. If you take this step, you'll get here. If you take this step, you'll get there. It's amazing how you can transform an organisation. Having known you for a while, I think the reason, one of the reasons you've got such visibility is you just, you've just taken on a really difficult space to go into. And you know, lots of people out there building sort of apps for, for insurance and, and you know, consumer engagement is important. But I think you've, you've tried to tackle something really hard and that actually creates a level of awareness. So, so well done. And the, and the other thing I you know, was impressed with uh, right from the very beginning is your ability to get some senior people together in a room late in the evening um, but slightly differently than we do. So could you just tell me a bit about your dinners and, and sort of what was the thinking behind that? Yeah, so we, we uh, annually run an insurance dinner, which a few people in the room have been to. Uh, and our, our thinking was that actually we wanted to be part of the community. So we started off just inviting, I think in the first year we invited four people and four people turned up. In the second year I think we had a, about 12. And you came to I think the fourth year where we had about 50 insurers in the room. Uh, and it tapped into a really interesting market dynamic is that they're, they're, the industry is actually quite paranoid. Nobody wants to be first in taking on this innovation, but nobody wants to miss out. So when we would go around and say to everybody, you make a sign NDA so I can't possibly tell you who I'm talking to, um, but we are talking to everybody, when we actually put them in the room together and they could see that we were talking to a lot of people, that for us was a, a pivotal moment. It, it, it helped drive the industry forward. Um, one of the other things that we've done, actually, bizarre enough, is, is install the industry in our own company. So if you look into our organisations, we are an interesting mix of technologists, data scientists, uh, and insurance people. Our parties are quite crazy, actually. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> um, so, so marketing's one thing. You get the visibility. You've, you've started to sign up some clients, and you had a... Um, I'm not quite sure it's cause and effect. I think I was in your office, and the day later you signed up three clients. So uh, clearly making some some, some progress. Um, but but what so what step or what stage do you find the most challenging for your team when you've got the visibility, you get the meetings, but actually you've got to go and close a deal? Uh, you know, where where in that whole pipeline is it most difficult for you? I think that uh, and Marco, who heads our sales, is here. I think probably about six months ago, 
Um, the most difficult stage we realised was recognising that we, as committed as we were to make everybody move forward, that commitment didn't actually occur at the same level in our customers. So we've had to categorise people into digital leaders uh, who will absolutely engage with, digital laggards who we, we just kind of park and say, well, they'll get there eventually, and then the digital pragmatists who we need to put through a process. But you can't take a laggard and make them a leader. We just have to just let them go at their speed. Do you want to name any names for any of those, any of those categories? No. <laughs> well, actually, in the leaders, I can put leaders, all okay. of our customers. There you go. Yeah. There we go. Uh, fantastic. Now, I mean, I do appreciate you being here. I, you know, I think in this, in this space, as someone said, you could almost wine and dine or suddenly eat you know, lunch, breakfast, and, and, um, and supper, probably not that, and order at, at various different sort of fintech and insurtech conferences. Um, you, you're a big supporter of, of Instech London. Just be kind of, you know, thank you for coming, but also why, what do you see in what we're doing at Instech that you choose to support us? Well, so the thing I like about Instec is it, it, it plays into that community as well. So uh, we're, we're very fortunate in that we've, we're having some success. But we've, had, you know, we've been in business as a company for, for seven years, and we've had some, some dark days. Um, I've had a day where I've been doing strategic planning in the morning, and in the afternoon I had the uh, uh, insolvency practitioner come and talk about winding the company up. So we've had a couple of dark days in our history. Um, and I wouldn't want to put anybody through... That I wouldn't want anyone else to go through that. So our view is if we can give back to the, the, the community and the industry, then that will probably serve us benefit as well in the, in the round. Fantastic. Andy, thank you very much. Thank you. So a slight shift now. Um, so, uh, so Chris Williams, do you want to come and join me on stage? So for all, those, all of you who are using LinkedIn, which I don't even need to ask the audience, I'm suspecting that's almost all of you, and have wondered uh, how some people manage to be successful and why others don't, um, I came across Chris because he had a very active profile on, on LinkedIn. So I thought it'd be interesting to ask Chris to join me on stage and, and talk a little bit about what he's doing and a little bit about what the... Uh, the secrets are for LinkedIn. So nothing else, hopefully, I'll leave today with some, some tips for how to get you, raise your profile on LinkedIn. But Chris, just first of all, just tell us a bit about what you do and, and, and what's brought you to this point in your career. Um, I, originally a data strategist to a degree, uh, or digital strategist working predominantly with data, got involved with a startup, Get Doddle, and discovered that we needed to really up our marketing game and looked at probably the best way of doing B2B, that was LinkedIn, that was all the Google ads was telling. Got a little bit heavily involved in that a couple of years ago and not really looked back. The crux of it are you've got a network of, or a potential network of 600 million active, and I use the term active loosely, um, accounts, personal accounts on LinkedIn. Um, there's about 10% of them which are actually being used efficiently and effectively. Um, but with three clicks, you can connect up to, you know, 500 million people, 600 million people, massive network, and it is totally and utterly underused. Um, company pages, um, straight out there, are, are pants. They don't get any engagement. They get very little engagement. You've got Hiscox, who have got 45,000 followers, and the majority of the company posts are going out. They're getting less than 50, 60 likes, something like that. Sorry. <laughs> but that's just as, a, as an example. It, your follow account doesn't necessarily right. matter. It's, it's literally how, how, how LinkedIn is treating content and how they continually move the goalposts. Um, and I know we're, we're going to 
touch on the algorithm slightly in a minute, so I won't go too Good. Well, so just before we get on to that, so, so most people don't want to spend their whole day or even meaningful amounts of their day going on to LinkedIn and liking things, you know, maybe write a little bit, but what, what's the characteristic of a, as a successful professional who's got a day job and how they use LinkedIn? They hire a marketing team called Proper LinkedIn Marketing <laughs> to do it for them. Um, realistically, if you, if you want to grow a network and have 10, 15, 20, 30,000 connections that are going to be active and engaged... So how many is that? 20, 30, 40,000, however, yeah. however many. Yeah. You've got to put the work in. Mm-hmm. Um, you can subscribe to using lots of bots and, and um, automation tools such as LinkedIn Helper or DuckSoup or, or any of those. I can give you the affiliate links if you want. Um, but ultimately, you've got to put the time into it. Um, we tend to save our clients between sort of two to three hours a day on the path that they're wanting to achieve based on their goals by us taking over. Don't, I mean, don't you then get the risk of oversaturation of, if I'm seeing Chris Williams pop up every day liking something or comment, then I just unfollow you and you've destroyed the whole potential. It's, it's a risk, but it all depends on what point you are in your buyer journey. So you're not going to be on your buyer journey where you want to buy every single time you see one of my posts. So it's about making sure that you are, you're pushing your personal brand. Do I dare say that marketing flowery word? Um, but making sure that you are prevalent and essentially relevant at the time that the buyer journey or the buyer is at that point in their journey where they want to make the purchase. Okay. Um, and then short form versus long form. So that for those of us who find we can't write less than 1,500 words um, and end up writing articles, what, what have you found is most successful in terms of getting engagement and, I guess, getting the message across as well? It's not just about the likes, but it's actually getting the message out there and building on that. Um, essentially, uh, articles used to be um, very, very good. Uh, we used to have LinkedIn Pulse, for those of you that have been on LinkedIn for quite a while. It's now been integrated into the main platform itself. An article um, still slightly takes you away from the platform. They're good as, as, as key information points, but essentially don't get the same algorithmic reach as a post. So your post is 1,300 characters. That's your, your, your status or your update, whatever terminology you want to call it. Um, and that's got the ability to get far more reach and, and regularly does. And we, we do testing on, on a weekly basis with accounts, with some of our dummy accounts, and, and also the, the, those clients that take part in, 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 our, in our testing. And we have never been able to get a, an article to get more reach than a, a standard post. Uh, and that's, that's purely down to how we are as consumers wanting to consume data and consume information. It's short, it's sweet, and we want that information in as quick as possible. You've only got to look at the likes of Twitter to how, how that's grown as a platform, although it is in a bit of a decline. Um, you know, 244 characters, it's never going to get more than that. The, you know, it was 144 was enough. Um, Don't tell Nigel Walsh. Nigel, are you still here? Twitter is in decline. I'm interested in that short form, long form, because I've actually found a different... I actually found the long form has been much more successful in terms of getting engagement and, and particularly in the, in the comments in there but um, it's interesting what the trends are but what about the algorithm can you sort of tell us a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes when, when somebody posts an article how does LinkedIn treat that how do you how do you optimize for the uh, for the algorithm um, I, I can tell you how the workflow of the algorithm works um, I don't work for LinkedIn or, or Microsoft so I can't tell you exactly how it works um, there's a lot of LinkedIn gurus and ninjas that will say they can um, 
when you post something on LinkedIn, it's making an assessment, an, an instant assessment of its of how good that is, and it puts it in front of a small section of your first, excuse me, your first degree network. If there's a lot of engagement on that early on, and you, you'll have seen this, if you get quite a few likes, comments, maybe a share within the first hour or so, that post tends to do a lot better. And it's what we call recycling. So the more likes and comments that you get generates more views. The more views, the more likes and comments. Now, all that means absolutely bugger all um, when I tell you that metrics like that are basically just vanity. Um, you can have 20, 30, 40 million views of, of, of a post, but if no one's actually going to engage and talk to you and become part of your pipeline, if that's what you're doing, it's pointless. Um, so don't get caught into the, th- the, the, the thought, thinking that, well, if I get 100,000 views of, of my post, that means I'm doing really well. If that's not generating anything from it, pointless. So any questions for Chris on LinkedIn, <laughs> other LinkedIn top tips? Thanks very much. Um, you said that company pages are dead and ultimately worthwhile, not worthwhile ventures. Um, what can younger businesses do to effectively build a brand in, in an industry where actually it might be more of a, a personal uh, approach to it? Uh, great question. I'm, I'm glad you reiterated the company pages are dead. When I said they're, they're dead, they're, they're not as active as, as, as personal accounts. Um, I think, I, I, I don't know if I'm the only one in here, but you, you tend to look at a company page to see what sort of activity is going on. You might not necessarily engage with it, but you see you know, it's, it's checking off that credibility factor. So while it's, the engagement isn't particularly good, I wouldn't suggest you put lots and lots of content on a page on a daily basis expecting to get engagement. Having a company page on there is, is, is still good to keep that brand message ticking over and making sure that when people are checking you out as a person and, and, and you've got listed a company that you work for, the credibility factor exists. Chris, thank you very much. And for anybody that wants to find you, Chris Williams LinkedIn, I guess, is going to get them there. Chris, Chris Williams NF, I think is my username. Very, 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 very quickly, if you're on LinkedIn and you go on to the My Network setting, there's a little button on there called Find Nearby. If you all click that on, everyone in this room that clicks it on, you can connect with everybody like that. Wow. Nice little tip. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay. Next up, we have Alex Hearn, CEO and founder of Slipcase. Uh, well, first of all, Matthew, thank you very much for having us here uh, to speak today. Um, so Slipcase, in its uh, simplest form, is a central content platform for the commercial and specialty part of the market. Uh, so we enable individuals, brokers, underwriters, risk managers around the world to come to one place and build a personalized feed of content that's updated throughout the day relevant to their specific role. Um, And on the flip side, we enable organizations, carriers, brokers, service providers to clearly showcase who they are, um, what they specialize in. And every time they produce new insights or announcements, we then enable them to to reach targeted audiences across the market with that information. Good. Actually, just quick hands up. Who's, Who's come across Slipcase? Wow, Alex, you think well? It's like, again about That's brilliant. Half, either either we've got people just like putting their hands up, and we think we're doing really well, or we're not, or uh, um, we've actually you've got a good good penetration into the market. Um, but so you've got no paywall. So uh, just talk a bit about what the sort of business model model is. Um, so indeed, yeah, we don't charge um, individuals to use the platform. Uh, so individuals, when they sign up, we vet them in, so we can guarantee the quality of the audience that we've built. 
Um, but our model is to charge organizations to be represented on, on Slipcase. So uh, companies, again, carriers, brokers, service providers have a dedicated page. Uh, we fully manage that on their behalf. We keep it updated with all their latest news and insights. Uh, and we report back to them every month on how they've performed on the platform and who they've, who they've reached. That's how we've decided to monetize the platform instead of charging for individual subscriptions. And, and, and going well, because you, you, you're, you're building up. Can you sort of talk about what your number of... Uh, what your clients are or, or people that publish on the site? Yeah, so we've now got, uh, we've got 36 organizational pages um, represented on the platform. Uh, we also represent uh, 16 of the major trade publications across the market who use us to distribute their latest news and insights. Um, so yeah, a, a really broad variety of information available. We also pull from third-party sources. So if Reuters, for example, pick up that a cargo ship has sunk in the Atlantic, we will pull that from Reuters and push that directly to our marine audience. So in no way is the content available to users limited to our, uh, our organizational pages and our trade publication pages, uh, but those are yeah, currently the organizations that we work with on, on that site. And, and are you commissioning journalism yourself or, or looking to get breaking news and putting that onto the site, or are you more just a facility to repost other people's information? Um, so we're a facilitator. We don't produce our own content at all. What we've just built on our mobile app is a push notification function. So um, if, you know, again, to use that same example, a bit of a morbid one, but uh, Reuters pick up on an article that's relevant to the marine world like that, we can then send a push notification to that audience uh, through our mobile app to keep them informed of what's going on. So to that extent, breaking news, but it's not our own. We pick it up online okay. um, and we then push it out to relevant audiences. Right. And one of my favorite topics, which we are going to be doing an event on before long, I may invite you back for that, the API. So you don't currently have an API, but you're thinking of releasing one? Have I just given away some secrets? Uh, no, not at all. Um, I have only just learned what API actually means. Um, well, explain, just to test you on that one, because Robin would also like to know what an API stands for. So. Well, I'd better get this right. I believe it means... <laughs> application Programmed Interface. Is he right, Robin? <laughs> Thank God for that. Um, so yeah, in its simplest form, that means that we can plug our platform into an organization's own systems. Uh, so that can be an intranet uh, or a trading platform, whatever the organization likes. Um, and we can keep their own employees or their own users uh, informed with the latest and best information from across the market relevant to those audiences. Uh, so as an example, we're about to go live next week uh, at Marsh uh, in their global uh, internal system uh, and we're accompanying it with a newsletter which goes out to all their employees on a, on a, on a day-to-day basis uh, to help drive traffic to, to, those, to, those, uh, to those articles. Great. And, and which, which in short tech community do you think provides you with the best insights and information to publish? Uh, Insight London, I would have thought would be would be uh... fantastic. Okay, uh, so just finally, I mean, popular themes. What, what, what do you find most people tend to be to be reading? I think it's fascinating. You can do the metrics, and, and I, yeah, kind of goes back to the question we had earlier with Olivia about how do you measure marketing. I mean, being able to provide dashboards really does demonstrate the value. But presumably, you can actually also break that down thematically, can you, about what people are hearing want to hear about? We can, yeah. So for, for clients, we report them back every month. Um, but actually, quite recently, we produced a report with a PR agency in London uh, to give more of a macro view of what people are reading across the industry, uh, in which formats, in which geographies, uh, which topics are of particular interest, et cetera, et cetera, um, which we're more than happy to share with anyone if they have an interest in that. Um, please grab us afterwards. Um, but yeah, top line stuff, I think it, what was particularly interesting is only one of the top five topics was a specialty line of business. The rest were general interest areas like insure tech or claims and losses or financial results. Um, 
also some really successful pieces with very short responses to big events in the market. So a lead, a lead cyber underwriter giving an opinion on a, a recent cyber attack uh, or after the big storms in the US last year, um, a response from that from one of the major carriers as well from their North American property underwriter. Uh, can be very brief, but it has a, has a great impact across the platform. Right, and we'll put a link, we'll put a link for those of you listening on the podcast to the um, your survey. And uh, just given that actually we've now got one third of our audience listening from the US, I think you've also got plans to go beyond the UK, is that right, with Slipcase? We do, yes. Um, so we, we were very much focused on the London market originally. Um, and about six months ago, our US traffic overtook our, our, took our UK traffic. We're now 42% US um, and 29% UK. And we're looking to, to keep expanding that this year to, to make sure we, uh, we jump on that momentum. So yeah, we've been out there a lot more. Uh, we're introducing more US-based organizational pages. Um, and I think with the API integration, some of the bigger broking houses, that's going to really help us reach a much wider audience across the US market, especially. Great. Well, Alex, again, another founder building a company. Really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us tonight. If people want to find out more about you, I guess slipcase.com is the way to get get to you. Absolutely. Please do. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. We're up now. uh, Neil Edwards, welcome. Welcome into the hot seat. Uh, So Marketing Eye, tell us a little bit about what, what you do. Fine, thank you. Yeah, so we're a demand generation agency for the alternative finance, fintech, and more recently the insurtech industries, which in plain English means that we get eyeballs on people's um, propositions, on their content, um, analyze and measure who's engaging with that content, and then help move them towards being a paying customer, ultimately. How do you find um, B2B sort of understands marketing? And I guess you've had a bit of context tonight, but what's your, as you come into this industry and, and work with people, and particularly in insurance, do they, how well do they get what marketing is all about? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think it would be ungracious and, and untrue, you know, to say that insurance as a whole doesn't understand marketing. Um, you know, I think what we see in insurtech is actually very similar to what we saw with alternative finance and, and fintech is maybe a deprioritization of marketing and a, and a lack of um, understanding of its value, perhaps. Um, so people are coming to the marketing piece too late. Um, so there's lots of focus on the product. Um, lots of money in the investment goes into the product. Um, without you know, doing that initial sort of testing and really sort of facing the fact as to whether um, customers actually want to buy this. Um, so it's actually very common that people will come to us and say, you know, this is our proposition and this is the year one target, but there's no sort of prior analysis as to whether that year one target is achievable. And when you drill down into it, the only reason it's there is that's the number that was in the investment memorandum. That was a promise that was made to investors. Um, so, you know, we would always encourage, you know, particularly new businesses to do that analysis beforehand, you know, to do that consultancy, to do that scenario modeling, and then get that product and that proposition to market very early. As they say, you sort of fail fast if you're going to fail, and then build your case on, you know, proper metrics, you know, as opposed to, uh, well, that's just the figure it needs to be to make everything else set up. So and who, who would your typical clients be then in the, in the insurance space? Sure. Well, in the insurance space, it is definitely the insurtechs. It's definitely people bringing new propositions into the market. Um, as I say, we cut our teeth um, in alternative finance. Um, 
So, and so I'm talking here about the peer-to-peer -peer lenders, the, the equity crowd funders, um, people bring new forms of invoice finance and the like to market. So lots of SME marketing in that. Um, and you know, as um, you know, fintech grew, as it became a noun in itself, and um, the church sort of broadened and insurtech grew up, you know, we realized that actually insurtech was going to go along the very same journey or much of the same journey as the alternative finance and fintech industry had done. So we felt there's a lot of experience we had to share there. I just want to go back about your point about, I think if I understood it correctly, saying you encourage people to do the marketing early. So one of the things that you know, Dan White at 90, what they do is when they're helping their clients figure out a proposition, they will do some, I'm not quite sure what the technical word for this is, but essentially mock up some insurance products, buy some Facebook or Google ads and see what the kind of response is to that. Um, is that the type of thing you mean by that, by sort of marketing the product maybe very early in the process and seeing what the response is before you invest too heavily in building the product? Very much so. Um, because we've been doing this for quite an amount of time, you know, we've got a lot of data on you know, average, average engagement rates, average conversion rates and the like. So, you know, before anybody takes anything to market, you know, what we can help a client do is to do that scenario modeling and say if we've got X amount of budget and we, and we do this, this marketing mix, what's that likely to mean in terms of an outcome, in terms of number of customers? And, and guess what? You know, they never tie up. You know, the budget to the figure never meets, you know, what's needed. So, you know, step one is can you change the marketing mix? But then the next step is do we need to have now a decent conversation about do we need more budget or do we need to be more realistic about what that target should be? So, so step one, you can do a, a paper-based exercise and just try and get people having real good, honest conversations with each other. Um, but then step two is absolutely small-scale controlled testing. Commit some budget. Understand that this is your test budget. You can't be putting an ROI target on that. The whole objective is to get early data. So you move from this sort of um, scenario modeling, which is all based on averages and other people's averages, into what your scenario is. And when you've got that, then you can properly plan your scale up. And just on, on content, um, just back to Chris's point, his experience has been people prefer short, short form versus long form, although albeit that's across the whole, I guess, the whole sort of area, not just insurance. What, what's been your experience when you do your, you do your newsletter on, on Friday morning? Um, you, you obviously have got quite a lot of experience in this area. What's, what's the sort of most popular content and what's the balance between sort of short form and long form? Yeah, so um, slight difference of opinion with Chris on this, but I, th I think it's how the content is got to and then how it's consumed and the journey that you take people on. So um, to get people properly engaged with your proposition and what you're trying to say, particularly if it's a thought leadership piece, you know, my experience is that the long article does actually get read. The trick is how do you get people through to reading that long article? That's where I think Chris and I do agree. It's you need that short post, you know, be it on LinkedIn or Twitter, whatever, to lead people through to maybe a, a short blog, which has um, maybe sort of chapter one of your longer article in, and then, you know, read more to get into the full piece. And if you can then make that full article downloadable, if you gate it in some sort of way, that gives you your lead 
then that opens up a whole raft of other opportunities to allow you to move then into a direct marketing environment using email and the like. Just more broadly, I guess, around social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, what's your experience of how effective social media is in, in the clients you're working with and more broadly in this B2B space in insurance? Sure, sure. Um, well, answer number one is it's really important you know, in, in the mix and it's often you know, undervalued um, in there. Um, and again, I come back to this point around um, it's understanding why you're doing something and the, the only reason we're really doing anything as marketers is to ultimately to try to get a paying customer. So I look at social media... understands that, by the way, in this space, that is to get a paying customer. So you say so, that, but it's actually, yeah, it's sometimes it's helpful to stop and remind people that it's about bringing revenue in, not just vanity metrics. And, absolutely. And, you know, it is very easy to just produce content for its own sake and... Um, you know, not really keep a focus on, you know, why why we're doing it. So to the point of, you know, for me, where does social media and, and LinkedIn in particular sort of fit into that? You know, I look at it, you know, really quite ruthlessly as a, as a distribution channel. You know, content generation is useless without distribution. You've got to get it in front of your customers and to be able to, or your prospective customers, and to be able to understand and measure who's engaging um, and social media is fantastic for targeting because we put all our lives on there. We can be really sort of rifle shots in how we're getting that content in front of people. So, um, yes, create your content, but you know, make absolutely sure you've got a mechanism to get it out in front of the broadest possible relevant audience. And more often than not, that broadest possible relevant audience is going to be on social media. Right. And finally, um, Friday morning, 7 o'clock, 7 a.m. Mm. is when you send out your newsletter. Conventionally, people would have said, don't send out newsletters on Friday, assuming you've done the testing and you've found that actually does the most effective time to get it out. Yeah. Well, you know, as Chris was saying, it's, you know, when's your network active and willing to sort of engage in your content? And we've found that actually Friday morning is good. Get it to people very early, first thing. So it's a little bit of breakfast reading. It's not too interruptive in that it's, it's easy to consume. But I think the more important point as to whether it's Friday morning, Thursday morning or, or whenever is we're absolutely consistent in when it arrives, you know, we're metronomic. So people now know that our newsletter comes at seven o'clock on a Friday morning. And that happens week in, week out, low, low news, high news, and the exception if it's Christmas Day or, or something like that. So there you go. If you're struggling to have a reason to get out of bed on Friday morning, <laughs> you can uh, set your alarm to seven o'clock in the morning. You can see the, uh, the Marketing Eye newsletter from Neil and his team. Neil, <laughs> that was tremendous. Thank you very much. No, great pleasure. Thanks for having me. So thank you to everybody we had on stage for our evening event uh, and also of course to our audience of over 200 people who joined us up in Shoreditch. Uh, details about the speakers and all the topics they mentioned are in the episode notes and also more information on this and all of our uh, recent events can be found at www.instec.london. Uh, next week I'll be talking to Pascal Millier, founder of cyber modeling company Cybercube, who was over in the UK recently. And to find out what myself, Robin and Paolo are finding interesting each week, please do sign up to our newsletter. You can find information on that on the website as well. 
Our next event will be on June the 3rd, back at the Steel Yard, and we'll be talking to some of the leading companies and thinkers about what is happening in the world of algorithms and insurance. <laughs>